Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today I'm going to be telling you about the murder of Christy Marac. So grab your cup of coffee and let's dive in. Christy Marac was born November 3rd, 1967, to Vincent and Geraldine Marac. She graduated in 1985 from Our Lady of Lords Catholic High School, and while she was there, she was a member of the Student Council, Yearbook, Newspaper, Pep Club, and other organizations. She was really involved and was always doing things for the school. After that, she went on to college at Millersville University and majored in elementary education. She ended up graduating from college in 1989 and went on to become an elementary school teacher at Roarston Elementary School. There, she taught sixth grade. Christy was living in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and was really close to her brother, Vince Marac. Vince talks about her and says that her dream from childhood was to become a teacher. And he was just really excited to see that she had been able to carry out that dream. Christy was living in Greenfield Estates, which was in Lancaster County. She was a really great teacher and all of her students admired her and other teachers thought that she was just an overall great person. On December 20th, 1992, in the evening, Christy was finishing wrapping up Christmas presents for her class. They were all going to get a paperback book called Miracles on Maple Hill with a candy cane taped to the top of each gift. She'd also wrote a note to all of her students in their gifts saying, quote, wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a great 1993. Love, Miss Marac, end quote. And I just thought it was super sweet that she decided to do all of this extra on top of just teaching the class. Yeah, I know a couple people that are in the teaching field now and they're really into that and I think it makes such a big difference. I agree. I think that the students kind of get a different respect for the teacher if the teacher's doing extra things like this. Well, everybody always has that like one or two or, you know, a couple of professors or teachers throughout your schooling that like feels like they made a big impact and it's stuff like that. I think that puts them in a like a higher level in your memories. Yeah, I would agree. The next morning on December 21st, 1992, Christy didn't show up for work and the school principal, Harry Goodman, was really worried. So he called Geraldine Marac, which was Christy's mom, and said that her daughter hadn't arrived at Roarston Elementary School that morning. And he was like, did she come home this weekend or do you know where she was? And her mom said that she had not. So she called the townhouse that Christy was living at and her daughter didn't answer the phone. So Harry Goodman, the principal, was like, I'm going to go to our house and check on her. When he got to her home around 9 a.m., he noticed the front door was ajar. He walked inside and saw Christy laying there dead on the floor. Her face was badly bruised and she was naked from the waist down, but wearing a winter coat. Now, when you say ajar, do you mean like the door was open or off the hinges or what does that mean exactly in this scenario so it was just open a little bit like when somebody went to leave they just didn't pull it shut all the way okay at this point harry called the cops and when they got there they learned that she had been sexually assaulted beaten with a wooden cutting board and strangled to death with her own sweater and her jar had actually been broken from the force of the strangulation and there was evidence of a struggle which showed that she had fought for her life Geraldine Marac, so Christy's mother, was still calling the townhouse repeatedly just to try to get a hold of somebody because Harry hadn't called her yet. And 
After three hours of her calling the house, one of the police officers answered the phone. But the family does not know who the guy was that answered the call. He just claimed to be a police officer. And they told Geraldine that she needed to come to Lancaster. And Geraldine kept asking for more information. And the guy just wouldn't say anything other than saying that there was an accident. Geraldine later found out that she had been murdered. That sounds so traumatizing to go through. And you know something's going on. I mean, the man is in the house answering. That must must have been stressful. Yeah, I couldn't imagine going through that situation. I mean, especially if he says there's an accident. Like, why can't you give more information to her? I I feel really bad for that. So police start to investigate even more. And they come out and say that they believe it happened between 7 in the morning and 7.45 in the morning. Because her roommate named Mary Lesko typically left for work right around 7. And Christy was always leaving for work typically right around 7.45. So they had that 45-minute time period where they were like, okay, it had to happen during this time. I didn't see them talking. Like, I couldn't find anything about them talking to the roommate to question her about anything to make sure that that was exactly when she left or anything. But I'm assuming that they went ahead and did that. It's just nothing I came across. So the police believe that the perpetrator was possibly waiting for her roommate to leave because you can see the apartment door from the parking lot across the street. And so they're like, maybe he was parked in that parking lot waiting for the roommate to leave and then went in there to find her. It definitely doesn't sound like someone just walked by and went in the house. It definitely sounds like someone was staking it out. Yes, it sounds like somebody had been like stalking her and had paid attention to kind of her routine a little bit and knew what she was doing. Police sent out a survey to everyone in the community and asked if they'd seen anyone out of the normal in the area. One neighbor came forward and said that they heard a single scream around 7.15 in the morning. There were a total of 12 detectives working on this case, and detectives were coming from two different police stations, the state police, the county sheriff, and the county detective offices. So they had a ton of different departments, a ton of different people working on solving this one case. Really early on, her family was cleared of any involvement, and they were like, you had nothing to do with it. The brother, the mom, the dad, they were all cleared. They were able to collect some DNA evidence from the perpetrator's semen, but because this happened in 1992, there really wasn't a whole lot of DNA testing that was being done back then. It's so insane to me that just in the 90s, there wasn't a ton of DNA tests. Like, that's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. And now look at how our DNA testing is. I know. I think we hit such like a like sped up rate of technology the past 20 years. But it every time we look into cases like this, I'm like, how did we not have the proper tools just in the in the 90s? Yeah, it's I think it's crazy to think about because that like you said, it really wasn't that long ago. Like we were that was when we were born. (laughs) So Police told the public that they had given a lie detector test to at least one person and had requested hair and blood samples from that person. I could not find any information about who they were talking about. And so I assume that that person was cleared based on whatever they had given. And so they just decided not to release his name. Police started looking for information about a man who had supposedly been seen walking toward her townhouse the morning that she was strangled. So they're like, once again, they kind of sent out another survey where they're like, hey, does anybody know anything about this guy? A witness had seen a man parked in a medium-sized car in the overflow parking lot across the street from her apartment, and he was walking toward the entrance of her townhouse around 7 in the morning. Based on where he was walking, he would have been like walking directly towards her door, and police said that if he had 
not gone into that place and actually been the killer, then he would have had to make a big detour to avoid her door because of how close he had gotten to it. He had been described as a man in his late 20s, 225 to 250 pounds, stocky with a muscular build, long, stingy, medium brown hair that hung to his chest. He was clean shaven and wearing a blue, white, and black faded shirt with blue jeans. Police stated that they believed that she knew her killer and it wasn't a random killing, which we hear that a lot. So it kind of makes sense. Well, like we said earlier, it had to have been someone who at least was following her for a little bit because he knew that he could come in at this time and the roommate would be gone and she would still be there alone. And you don't just like, I mean, it'd be weird for them to just like happenstance come across that situation. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. In January 1993, so about a month after the murder, investigators announced that they were looking for a muscular white male who was driving a white car, and that was who they believed their suspect was. That was all they gave? Yes. <laughs> but they did give a kind of vehicle description. They said that the vehicle was either a 1993 Dodge Shadow convertible or a 1990 Dodge Daytona or Toyota. So there were like three types of this white car that the guy could be driving. So it had a little bit more information, but it wasn't a ton to go on. Yeah, just muscular white man isn't very descriptive. I think it's very descriptive. Oh, okay. So in 1993, the family offered a $10,000 reward for information about the murder of Christy. So in today's money, that would be about like an $18,000 reward for information about the murder of Christy. At this time, it was also announced that anybody that she had worked with at the school had been cleared of the crime. So they were kind of running out of lists of suspects. The police were unable to solve the case, and it eventually went cold. Unfortunately, in November of 2002, Christy's mom, Geraldine, passed away from cancer without ever knowing the answers of what happened to her daughter. In May of 2002, so this was the year that her mom passed away, but prior to it, the Sunday News received a phone call from an unknown caller who said he had a story idea. So there was a staff writer that was on the phone with this unknown caller and he was telling her, you know, I have a story idea, but the staff member was kind of not listening at first, but she says about a quarter of the way through the conversation, she got suspicious because he had refused to identify himself. She said that he sounded like he might've been in his thirties and he was talking really fast. So she got really concerned about where this was going. Is that something people do? Apparently. That sounds weird in general, unless they're like, I've got a scoop on something. You know what I mean? Well, this happened in the Dorothy Jane Scott case too, if you remember correctly. Somebody called the newspaper and was like, look, I've got her. And was like pretending to have her... Yeah, but do people just call in to give, like, news station stories? Apparently. 
I know nothing about that know. world. Or it just happens in the murder cases where they're like <laughs> murderers, like, yo, focus on me for a minute. Yeah, like if and you're an like, editor or something and they call in, they're like, I've got a story for you. I guess that makes sense. It just seems weird. But anyway, he was fishy. He was fishy. So he said that he and some buddies had been sitting around drinking the night before and had been talking about Chandra Levy. And she was that intern of the congressman, Gary Condit, and her skeletal remains had been found on May 22nd in Washington Park. I don't know if you remember hearing about that case. Him and his buddies were talking about that girl. And he said that the newspaper should do a story on women like her who slept around with a lot of different men and lived a life that a lot of people didn't know about. He then said that he was referring to Christy Marac. And he was like, you know, the 10-year anniversary of her murder is coming up in seven months. And since she's a woman like her, you should cover her case. What a... What? Yeah. You and weird and creepy and uh, a lot of yes. words. Yes. So he said that he had known Christy and had been friends with her and her brother Vince. And he said that there was a barn on a property that the Merak family had owned and Christy would take men to that barn and have sex with them or do whatever with them. As you do. Obviously. Not the house that she lives no, in. No. No. The barn. So they talked to Vince and Vince was like, there's no barn there. So I don't know what this guy's talking about. And he never identified himself, right? Correct. The staff member from the Sunday News said that the caller just kept saying, you need to do a story on, quote, women like her, end quote. And... She kept asking, the staff kept asking like what he meant by that. And he finally answered the question kind of and said that and called Christy a derogatory name and said that she was promiscuous. I don't know what derogatory name he said, but I'm sure we can all kind of from what he said about her kind of gather what he probably called her. And the caller at one point said, quote, women like that did not deserve to die. But what else did they expect? And I just I don't know. The staff member said that it was just like she had a super eerie feeling and she was just really worried about it. Did they have a phone number or was it private? I think it was private. They weren't able to track it because the Lancaster newspapers use a trunk line is what they call it in that time period, which is a telephone line that links a private telecommunication system to the publicly switched network. That's how it's worded. So basically, the call is untraceable because of what the Lancaster newspapers used for their phone lines. Well, that makes kind of sense with newspapers and writers and stuff. It can You could have resources that you don't tell people about. You don't have to tell people where it came from. Yeah. And FBI agent James Fitzgerald said that the caller might have been her murderer, which is really creepy to think about. James Fitzgerald said it was possible that his remorse was coming out because if he'd seen like the discovery of Chandra Levy's body, he might have been trying to like rationalize his own homicide is what he said. So I don't really know exactly. They asked the staff member if they had heard any noises in the background or anything during the call to indicate like where the caller might have been calling from or anything, but they had nothing to go on. Just the fact that there was a phone call. So they like released information to the public and said like, if you have any information about it, call this number, call the police department and turn in any information about this caller. In 2016, the case was then transferred to the district attorney, Craig Sedman, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They also ran out of leads and suspects during their investigation. I didn't really find a whole lot about their investigation. I'm assuming they were kind of just going back through all the old paperwork and things trying to see if they'd missed anything. 
They decided not to mark the case cold, though. They left it open so they could continue to investigate it. In 2018, a breakthrough came in the case, though, when the district attorney office decided that they needed to contract with Parabon Nano Labs to perform genetic testing on DNA samples that had been collected in 1992. Woo! (laughs) Yeah, you were talking about the DNA stuff, and I'm like, it plays so much more in this than you understand. So Parabon Nano Labs uses genetic genealogy to compare DNA samples in massive public databases to find people with enough genetic similarity to be family members. That's the fancy term that they used to describe their company. So many of you actually probably have heard of this technique. It was used to catch the Golden State Killer, which was just two years ago in 2018. And Parabon Nanolabs generated a genotype file from the DNA samples and then a DNA phenotype composite of the killer's attributes. So in a not fancy term, they basically came up with an image and a picture of what the killer would have looked like in 2017 based on the DNA that they had from the semen. So they were able to come up with hair color, eye color, and skin tone and come up with a photo of this guy. That is absolutely insane. Uh, yeah, I. that's how crazy DNA has come from 1992 until now. And this was in 2018 when all of this would have been coming about. So when the samples, the DNA samples from the scene were tested the first time, they were put into a criminal database, but there was no match. I think this criminal database is an amazing investment, and I think that it definitely has made a huge difference in cases. Information from the DNA at the scene was uploaded into a database named GEDmatch. So it was GEDmatch. So the GEDmatch basically is where it can show the amount of shared DNA between two people, which is cool because basically what happens, and many of us have heard of this, I know, members of the public voluntarily send their DNA to the database and they put it in there and then they can compare that to the DNA of the semen. And then if your relative has committed a crime, it can be found. So DNA found at crime scenes is then submitted and compared to it. And it narrows down the suspects to a specific family. And that really helps investigators. And I know that that had been used with the Golden State Killer. And it was also used with the case in Fort Wayne with April Marie Tinsley. So the evidence that they got from GED match ended up working and somebody in the family submitted DNA and they were able to point it to the Rowe family. And after this, they quickly narrowed it down to Raymond Rowe. So his half-sister had been the one to submit her DNA and because of that, they were able to connect it to him and he looked like the photo that they had come up with. And I'm going to try to find a photo of it for you guys to post, but I was watching it in a documentary and so I don't know if I can find just a photo to post, but I will try. So Raymond was someone that they had never suspected prior to the DNA testing. They only looked at him because of what his half-sister had submitted. So at this point, they need to investigate Raymond and find out more information about him, find out how he knew her, why he did it, all of the things. So even though they had the DNA comparison done, they still needed to just confirm that he was the one to have murdered Christy, even though his DNA was at the scene of the crime. The Pennsylvania State Police Department had officers go undercover at a school function in May where Raymond was playing music. So he was actually a DJ, which I'll get into more later. Of course he was a DJ. (laughs) The officers saw him with gum and a water bottle and they collected them as samples after he threw them away. They tested those samples against the DNA evidence 
that they had found at the scene of the crime, and they were able to determine that there was a 1 in 200 octillions chance that the perpetrator was Raymond Rowe. So I had to look up exactly how much octillion was because I don't know that number. Do you know that number? No, not familiar. (laughs) It was a big one, though. So octillion is 1,000 trillion trillion, which is a number of 27 zeros behind it. And since there's only 7.6 billion people on the planet, the it invest- was him. Yeah, the investigators <laughs> are like, there's no possibility that it's someone else. So they were able to arrest him at his home on June 25th, 2018 for the murder of Christy Marac. They do have to try to figure out motive at this point, though. He's not really talking much. They started trying to figure out if Christy and Raymond had known each other prior to the murder, but they weren't able to find out an exact like relationship between the two they kind of just speculated that maybe he had seen her one day and just decided to target her after he'd watched her sunbathe outside her apartment so i assume he lived in the area at the time yes yeah, so i'm actually going to go into some details about raymond Rowe. so in 2019 he would have been 50 years old djing i don't know that he was still djing at 50 years old. i just he am might. thinking about like you know when you hear dj you think of like the younger like our age maybe yeah. and then you don't hear DJ in 50 years old often. Well, I mean, he so in 1990s, he would have been about 20-ish or something. So he was a DJ who owned a business called Freeze Entertainment, and he was referred to as DJ Freeze. And it was F-R-E-E-Z. So take that as you will. I don't know. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so police believed that Chrissy possibly went to clubs that Raymond worked at as a DJ, and that could have been where he first spotted her. There was a ticket in Christie's wallet from a club that Raymond had worked at. So they were like, maybe they were kind of drawing some connections, but it was unknown. Like if they had actually interacted with each other, or really even knew each other. He had started out as a break dancer in the early eighties and started DJing shortly after and soon became a popular house party DJ in the mid eighties. And that's a quote from his website about what he used to do, that whole thing. The breakdancer, the DJing, all that. He's really cool. Um, that was sarcasm in case you guys missed yeah, it. Yeah, sorry if you guys can't understand my sarcasm. <laughs> 100%. He had lived in Lancaster County for many years following Christie's death. He didn't even leave. And it was believed that he had worked in an office close to where Christie lived at the time of the murder. And so he would have been driving past her place. And he only lived about four miles from her house. Did they check into what vehicle he had then? Yeah, the vehicle we owned when the murders happened matched the same one that witnesses had seen, which was a white Toyota. So they start to kind of piece together the morning of the murder because all they know now, they have their guy kind of a reason that they know each other. But what exactly had happened on December 21st? So Christy was getting ready to head to work when Raymond showed up at her house. And that was when he attacked her. It, she was getting ready to basically walk out the door. She had been carrying the presents for the kids and he had attacked her right at her door. And so like the presents and stuff were all scattered right at her front door. And right after the murder, Raymond went back to his normal life. He went home to his fiance and acted as if nothing had happened. So his fiance at the time named Monica Whalen ended up marrying him a few months later. And she said that there were never any signs of him being a killer. Like, she had no idea about this. And she said, quote, you just don't know what to think. I mean, he slept in my bed that night. You know, we had Christmas four days later. And we got married months later, end quote. It's just absolutely horrifying. I can't even imagine. Like, 
it's just so terrifying that you may never truly know somebody. That makes me never want to get married. (laughs) Monica said that after the murder, Raymond expressed concerns to her about her safety with the killer on the loose, which I think is kind of sadistic almost. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't even know. It's a weird thing to even like say or bring up if you have just murdered someone. Yep. And so the motive behind why he attacked Christy is still really unknown. So they were never able to connect him to another murder or anything. They don't believe he ever murdered anyone other than her. So why do you think he did it from what I like? I don't have any. I don't have a reason. But why do you think he did it? I assume he probably has done other stuff. Maybe not murdered, but I assume he has sexually assaulted other people because that's such a big move to just do all of a sudden. He probably just had some like, you know, some killers do. They have these issues and these uh, I don't know what the right word is like a tendency where they have to do this. It's just who knows why murderers do what they do. Like these yes. people, you can't really define it because it's so like impossible to understand in a way. Yeah. So why why do you think like he won't even admit why he did it? That's what I don't understand. He probably just doesn't talk. You know, some people don't want to talk about the stuff they've done. Maybe uh, I'm not sure. When he was arrested on June 25th, 2018, he was arrested for the murder of Christy Merak, and he was going to be tried for first-degree murder. And so until the trial happened, he was being held without bail at a Lancaster County prison. On January 8th, 2019, he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder of Christy Merak, rape, and related counts for Christy he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole with a consecutive term of 60 to 120 years. So he's gone. He's just in prison for the rest of his life. And he did accept a plea deal so that he didn't have to receive the death penalty. District Attorney Craig Stedman says, quote, We have a truly innocent victim. Her entire life was ahead of her. She had her dreams. She was a positive member of the community. She was a teacher teaching kids, and her life was taken from her brutally. His apprehension is long overdue. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.